0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 386 featuring Sean Devereaux, producer and visual effects supervisor. Uh, Someone dude I've known for for many years. Uh, I worked with him uh, back at DDS, as do a lot of my stories tend to be. But uh, he is a very successful person in the field of visual effects. He started his own company called Zero VFX. Uh, and uh, he actually has sold of Zero VFX, uh, but the company is still very much alive. Uh, he just sold his shares. Uh, but he uh, something else he did is while he was uh, at Zero, he uh, spun off another company called Zinc, which some of you may know because it was sold. He sold it to Google, and Zinc is obviously a cloud rendering system that uh, Google uh, 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 bought, purchased from him. So he's actually been really involved in the industry, and it's been really cool to work uh, to, to catch up with him and have him back onto the podcast. So. Really exciting to have Sean. Kristen, what did you think of Sean?
1: Well, it's an exciting podcast because he talks very excited, like, and you just want to listen the whole time. Um, Uh So he kind of just takes us through his journey, just hustle, literally hustling his way into Hollywood um, uh, and to owning his own VFX studio, like you said. And now he's just producing and VFX supervising. Um, I also liked how he said in the beginning he just really wanted to love his job um, Mm -hmm. and then his story of how he got a job at DD. It's quite fun to hear. So I'll let you listen to that. Um, right. And also he kind of talks about how it, how it was working at the beginning, of, beginning of COVID working on movies and just all the different precautions that they had to take. Um, yeah. And I like leaving with this quote that he said, um, he said, if he, if it's, if you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard enough. Um, because as he said, making movies is hard, but the reward is worth it. And, you know, the harder you work, some mistakes happen, <laughs> but they're, they're good mistakes usually in right. the end.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These basically don't be cautious is what he's mm-hmm. uh, is really well, kind of saying, but it's great. I mean, Sean is fantastic. Uh, he's full of energy, as you said. I uh, really love talking to him. He's a super nice guy. He really knows his stuff. He's got a sharp eye and he... Uh, uh, it says what he means, so it's really cool talking talking to him about that kind of stuff. Uh, cool. We have a couple of announcements. Uh, first thing is we should say that chaos uh, that uh, V-Ray six for three Ds Max is out. I know you'll be asking for uh, when is it going to be out for other products. Uh, betas are starting to roll out for our other uh, product for our other platforms. Uh, so don't worry, Max and uh, sorry Maya and uh, Houdini and uh, SketchUp, Rhino, all of those will eventually get their V-Ray 6s, and they will be fairly soon. Uh, But uh, if you're interested in V-Ray 6, go check it out. Go to chaos.com. Lots of new features, including a new procedural cloud system, geometric pattern tools, scatter tools, uh, decals with displacement, um, displacement for decals, and proxy objects hierarchy. So lots and lots of, and and much, much more. So go check it out at chaos.com. All right, we have an event coming up, which we've mentioned a little bit before, but it's going to be happening again. Tell us, Kristen, what is happening in September?
1: All right, so you can find this out at chaos.com slash events, and it is 24 Hours of Chaos. It is back September 8th and 9th. Just a quick rundown. It is 24 hours, and it's a series of 12 back-to-back shows all online, um, and we unite like 3D artists, designers, around the world working in arc viz vfx animation gaming and product design so it's going to be a lot of fun our show is the la show which will be um on september 8th from at 6 p.m pst time so tune into that but go to chaos.com slash 24-hours.chaos to find out more or just go to our events page
0: I, I love 24 hours of chaos. I, I thought at first I was like, this is crazy. We're not really going to do this. And then it turns out it was an absolutely amazing. There are several people who actually stay up for all 24 hours and watch all 12 shows. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a cool and a commitment. I just have it on and like playing the whole time while I'm working, which is great. And it's really cool. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go?
1: You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV.
0: Perfect. And if you guys have any comments or questions or ideas for other guests on the podcast, please let us know. Email is labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 386 with Sean Devereaux. Welcome to another CG
2: Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passé. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has fun now. Well, how are you?
3: I'm good, man. It's uh it's been a crazy couple of years, I guess for everyone. Yeah. Um but uh yeah, doing really good. How about you?
0: I'm doing the same. Uh, I Actually, working from home has worked out pretty well for me. I don't have to do two and a half hours of driving to get to work, and so it's amen saved me a lot, and I've always kind of slightly been an army of one uh, in what I do, so I just brought everything here at the house, <laughs> and I got a vibe in a living room, you know, <laughs> so I can do my stuff, so it's been good. That's awesome. It's been good, yeah. Good. Well, cool. Listen, uh, obviously, you and I know each other for, for years and, and stuff. But I want to give people a, a bit of a, a background into uh, what you do and, and how you got to be doing the kind of things you do. So this a, and by the way, what I like the most about this podcast is people that I've known for years, I found out all kinds of cool stuff about them that I didn't even know. So what's your origin story, Sean?
3: Oh man, the origin story. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I guess I knew I'll start way back. I'll do it quickly. Uh, I knew when I was four years old, I wanted to do movies and I think visual effects in particular, although I didn't know what that was at four years old, obviously. Um, I watched Wizard of Oz on my parents, 13 inch color TV hid behind their couch when the Wicked Witch of the West, you know, burned up into a fireball, you know, and went through the floor. And, uh, I, to this day, I've never had an emotion as strong as the fear I felt right in that moment. Um, and kind of in hindsight I think my next thought was okay how did they do that to me and how do I do it to other people not necessarily the fa- fear of it but has this small little box affect me so viscerally um so that was kind of what I wanted to do from that point on and then spent the next you know 18 years talking myself out of it because I didn't know anyone I, I came you know I was born in in just outside of Boston um didn't know a single person that had ever been on a movie set let alone worked on a movie or anything like that so I just didn't think it was realistic and I come from a very you know, both my parents are super hard workers. Um, we never really had any money. My dad worked, his, worked two jobs to support us, um, mm-hmm. so I didn't see him much. So all I knew was you had to work really hard, and that's the goal, support your family. And movies was not something that just kind of thought that was possible. I didn't know. I didn't have a single example. Mm-hmm. Um, and even more than that, I didn't have a, an example of really an adult in my life that loved what they did. Like, my dad worked his ass off. Like, unbelievable work ethic, great example. But for 35 years, we're in the same place and never once told me a job a part of it he liked. Mm-hmm. You know, So it was like I had an example of work hard. Don't worry about having fun. You know, it's supposed to, you're know, supposed you supposed to work hard. So all I knew as a kid was I don't want to be an adult ever. Like That sounds horrible. <laughs> um, but that's how I made my decision. So like I wanted to do movies, but I went and studied graphic design because I knew I could go design logos for small businesses. I had a natural talent to it, and it's not a hard job to get. Right. And um, because of... I think it's divine intervention, whatever the reason is. I finished my graphic design degree. You know, it was supposed to be a four-year program. I finished it in three semesters because I had some problems with compute, the registrations. And anyway, I finished it. So I'm like, wait, I have two and a half years left of gen eds. Oh, that's awful. Right. So I took one film class where we got to roll one can of eight millimeter reversal stock, edit in camera, um, spent it out, came back two weeks later, got to project it, and... Jumped up and down, was screaming so loud at what I was watching that you know professors from around the school had to come tell me to shut up. <laughs> and I knew that there's no. This is what I have to do the rest of my life. Um, and I went to a school. I'll just say it because you know maybe I went to a school called Fitchburg State University, mm-hmm. a really small school, Central Massachusetts. Uh, at the time, like as a freshman, we were cutting on Abbotts, okay. which was you know that didn't happen. What year you know, was 120? this? This was in 1990, What I, I graduated in 99, so it would have been 96 when I started. Okay.
0: That, that's so that's we were Avid's expensive systems back then.
3: Well, Avid is from Tewksbury, Massachusetts, oh, so there was a direct local connection. Nice. That's cool. So that was a that was huge. And honestly, we'll have access to computers. And then, of course, um, we had After Effects. Right. But no one knew how to use it, so I did some self-studies on how to do that. And then my graphic design kind of prowess leaned very easily into visual effects Mm -hmm. and turned into motion. I became the visual effects guy at school for all the short films and did everything from exploding heads to title design and and all the things, you know, we get to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was super fun. And then um, Jonathan Eggstad is an alumni of my school.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah.
3: So I had, uh, and digital domain. It's so weird, man. People should know who John's next. He
0: was like one of the big guys uh, at, at DD. like he, he, he kind of wrote a big portion
3: of it, right? (laughs) Yeah. He wrote, I think if not, yeah, a big portion of it, and he's currently rewriting it right now. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I know he's at the foundry again (laughs) now working on it again, which is great. Um, so uh, so, he was a, so I knew, so I didn't know who he was. I didn't know he went to school. I had no knowledge of him. And at Fishburne State University, you're required to do your last semester in the communications department. Whether you're in photography or graphic design or film, you have to do an internship unpaid. Mm-hmm. And for reasons that I won't get into because it's too long, Digital Domain was the only place I wanted to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, they had just won the Academy Award for Titanic. Uh, they were nominated at the time for What News May Come, I believe, or was where they were about to be. Um, for whatever reason, I wanted to go there. I didn't know anyone there. And a week before my internship deadline, where the school was literally saying, you either find a spot in LA now, or you're staying in Boston, you're going to work at a public access, access channel or something that has nothing to do right. with what I want to be doing. And I'm starting to panic. I went through HR, DD, tried everything. They were not, HR was not, they did not have a priority of hiring an intern. Right. That was not something that they were looking to do. Um, and just randomly walking around the school, the equipment, the camera equipment guy manager of the that, that department who kind of when you checked out cameras, you talked to him, heard me complaining or walking through the hallway saying, and he goes, "Would well, you call Jonathan Eggstad yet? And I was like, who's Jonathan Ekstad?" And I'm like, he'd only graduated, I think seven years before me or six years before. Me. It wasn't like a crazy long time, but n- everyone knew what I wanted to do. And no one mentioned, none of the other professors mentioned that there was an alumni that worked at the company
2: that <laughs> you wanted to work that for I wanted it, to be right? at.
3: So I called Jonathan. I sent him my very shoddy, but, um, highly polished, uh, you know, VHS demo reel with uh, cover art for my graphic design program. Mm-hmm um and said please let me come work for you for free um and literally a day before the deadline he was like he just said yeah come on down and i was like oh, oh my goodness and a week later it was right it was right before the christmas break and a week later i was driving to california wow. with uh, everything i owned which was a desk a crappy computer i owed money on and 500 dollars in cash and a hyundai accent with no car radio
0: <laughs> did you have air conditioning which was
3: a rough drive <laughs> I did have air conditioning. Okay, good. So that worked out. But it was January, so I don't think that came. Oh, up, that's came true. That's true,
0: that's true. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So how long was your internship supposed to be?
3: Like, so it was uh, it was you know the spring semester. So January through was that Aprilish? Okay, give or take. Um, and dude, my first day at Domain, I'm sitting. Jonathan Eggstats on my right. Mm-hmm. Lupa Core is on my left. Mike <laughs> Canfer is diagonal uh-huh. to me. And the first person I have lunch with is Mike camper just randomly in the kitchen. Right. And, uh, you know, color scientist genius. Right. Um, and I'm just like, and th- that, and then Mark Forker, I'm sorry, no, Mark Stetson was my first supervisor. Oh, wow. and we were doing Supernova. Yep. Uh, I mean, just the the surroundings I got to be in, uh, it was, it's still one of the, I just can't believe it. Like the, the way my career got to start. Yeah. The, the leadership I was around the generosity of all these people,
2: yeah.
3: um, the gratitude these people feel that I also feel like it just i mean I can never replace those couple first couple years of d day yeah, and as an intern to be the first day, literally sitting next to. Two Academy Award winners. I think Lou's now been nominated. If not, he's, he, he will be soon. Right. Like, it was just crazy. And Mark Stetson, of course, multiple nominations. I've actually tried to get ridiculous. Mark
0: Stetson to be on this podcast a couple times. I don't know why I keep not being able to
3: connect with him, but
0: he's, he's such a, a nice he's person. So great. Such a nice... Oh, my gosh, yeah. dude.
3: Like, the fact he knew my name. Like, right. he, he was literally finishing Supernova, which is a horrible movie, but gorgeous visual effects. Uh-huh. They were working seven days a week. A new intern showing up halfway through, like how often do you give that person the time of day? You just don't have the time to. I mean, he was, no, we were walking down hallways together or he's getting to know me. I'm like, dude, this is, and at the time it was my first experience in this business. So I didn't understand that that was how rare that was.
2: Right.
3: It's like, how are you looking back on, especially now as a supervisor, how are you working seven days a week? driving 300 people to finish a movie that you have no time to do and you're spending time talking to an intern and getting to know them. Like, holy cow, yeah. man. Like the generosity and gratitude in that was just, it's unbelievable. The example. They Are set
0: you paying it forward now?
3: <laughs> oh, as much as I possibly there can without question. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, the, the heart for this is, is not softened for me. I feel like, uh, like I said, I don't want to ever be adult. I feel like I'm still not yet an adult. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like, you feel like you're playing a lot when you do some of that stuff. That was great. All right, yeah, so you totally. got your internship there. You got you got there through yeah. May, and then did that suddenly turn into a real position?
3: Yeah, I will tell this story real quick because, again, I'm getting too long into this stuff, but I think it's worth telling. So um, Lisa Spence was the production manager, Gosh, I believe, on Supernova, so. yeah. or at least coordinator somewhere on there. She was mm-hmm. amazing, of course, mm-hmm. and is amazing. Um, it was, I think, the second weekend I was there. Uh, everyone was working seven days a week. Obviously they were not requiring me to do anything but nine to five or nine to six and no weekends. But if they were there, I was there. I wanted to be the first one in and the last one to leave. Right. And on a couple nights they would like four, they were like, you need to leave now. This is not okay. And then I would just refused to do it. So they were well, fine. If you're going to stay here, you're going to sit next to carry Viegas and make sure he saves every 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So literally there was nights where I just sit there, watch carry Viegas on the flame Make sure he's saving every 20 minutes. While well, we're both kind of nodding our heads every time there's a render happening. <laughs> um, but anyway, one Sunday, um, it was the second Sunday I was there, um, the kitchen was destroyed because obviously lunch is getting in every day. Right. The cleaning staff isn't coming in on Sundays, so it was destroyed. So I cleaned the kitchen without being asked to do it. Um, and again, I thought it was a work ethic thing. I realize now it's like, no, I just love being there so much. I needed to just keep contributing in any way I could. But anyway, Lisa comes in and catches me cleaning the kitchen, and she's like... Who told you to do this? And I'm like, nobody. You guys deserve a clean place to eat. And without any, like, I wasn't uh, just genuine. Like, I just, you guys deserve a clean place to eat. You're freaking here seven days a week. Right. And she's like, well, what are you doing after your internship? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, you're hired. So she hired me two weeks in Because I cleaned the kitchen well.
0: Well, no, you saw you saw value in it. I, I mean, I, I think that's awesome. And Lisa is an amazing yeah. person. I amazing. Um, I had the hardest. I was uh, my first uh, position as a lead was on was on iRobot, and she was my uh, uh, she was uh, the uh, manager on that. And I was having a hard time with certain parts of it, uh, uh, the leadership yeah. part, because the leadership part is the hard part. It, being a good artist is one thing, but being a good leader is actually a completely a new set of challenges. <sighs>
3: Totally different.
0: And I was having a hard part with that. And she just talked me through it and guided me through it and making tough decisions and having difficult conversations. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, she was amazing. So I absolutely yeah. incredible person. Yeah.
3: And not grabbing the mouse every time you someone has a problem.
0: Yes. Don't grab the mouse that when is, someone has a problem. Exactly right thing to say.
3: <laughs> that took some time. Yeah. That took some time to learn that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you did Flame, too, right?
3: I did Flame and Nuke. That was my specialty. Yeah,
0: because... Yeah, Flame artists tend to not like, tend to like to grab the mouse.
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I was just so blessed to be surrounded by the people I was like Klaus Hanke, yeah. and Donovan Scott, Brian, Brian grill, Matthew Butler. Like yeah. the examples of leadership I had, like from the start of my career right. was ridiculous. Yeah. And it's like, like you look up this last, this last Academy Awards, it's like, Seventy-five percent. Uh, they of the were all down. nominated for Best Visual yeah. They were all digital. I was like, "This yeah. is what a blessing yeah. to be around that Brian group at the time. and it's Kelly
0: and uh, and all those guys, Nikos, Nikos and Paul yep. Lambert, Sven." <laughs> yep,
3: it's it's like ridiculous. Yep. It's ridiculous.
0: Yep. All right. So so okay. So your first your first film as an intern was Supernova, and then what did you what did yes. you go on from there?
3: So from there, I went to I joined the technical assistant or technical department at Digital Domain, basically the customer internal customer support. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, had a box of stuff with, like, extra styluses and mice and things like that. And they'd call the hotline, and I'd run over into the other multiple buildings and fix people's computers as quickly as I could. Okay. Um, and just, to, again, because I'm sure people that are starting industry are listening. Like, one thing, every time I met someone, they knew immediately my name and that I wanted to be an artist. Right. I wasn't shy about it. I wasn't I was very humble about it, too. I was like, I am an artist. Give me a chance. It was like, I'm trying to be an artist. Anything you can, te- you know, let me know, teach me would be great. Yep. Um, but I did my first, my day job first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I hustled, got their computer problem fixed. And while I'm fixing it, I would kind of try to break the news that I'm not. I knew like, a lot
0: of PhDs who worked at their first job at ILM in the tape room doing backups.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's like, <laughs> ugh. I mean, that's, i luckily, I did not have a, I barely got a bachelor's degree. Okay. I did get it, but barely. Yeah. Um, but like it started like, so Klaus Hanky just another example of great leadership. Like he called me once on the hotline, ran over to the system, had my box of stuff to fix anything he needs. I'm like, all right, what do you need? What's going on, Klaus? How can I fix you? And he goes, no, no, sit down. You bring your notebook. I'm like, yeah, I have a notebook. He's like, all right, I'm going to teach you about logarithmic color space. Oh. And I was like, what? Like, you're just going to, you didn't need anything. You're actually teaching me. Mm-hmm. So again, just the generosity of that leadership is something I still try to do today, and it was a huge blessing. So from there, I went on to, um, I think my first movie as an artist was The Grinch* Are Still Christmas. Oh, right. Matthew Butler brought me in. I was supposed to be a roto artist, but they brought me in to do the 3D system in Nuke and just basically uh, assemble all the pan and tiles for the Skywork. And this was like barely, there wasn't, at this point, there was not a visual interface for the 3D system for Nuke. Right. It was just command line. Um, so if the math worked, we saw the sky through the camera. And if the math didn't work, I saw a black screen. Right. So I literally got to learn the nuke 3d system, not by pressing buttons and trying stuff, but literally having to do the math, which was a huge blessing as far as understanding how things work. Um, especially someone that I'm not really a math guy necessarily at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have to lean on math was a huge, you know, blessing at that point. Mm-hmm. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't hack it. I had to do it right. Right. Um, So that was a really great experience. And then after that, we went right from Grinch to Vanilla Sky, which is another huge Sky show for obvious reasons. And um, basically, I got to help teach the 25 compositors that were on how to use the 3D system in Nuke and basically led that show through, um, which was amazing And uh, for Matthew Butler on that one. And then um, just started compositing and then quickly went to Comp Souping. Because I think was I was one of the first people to know the three D system in Nuke, except for Jonathan Ekstad. So right. <laughs> it was it was a nice thing, um, or three D artists like Matthew Butler knew it really well, of course. Sure. but he was busy doing other things. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and then yeah, I spent I don't know I think four or five years of DD where I eventually burnt myself out, despite everyone warning me I would burn myself out right. because I was working eighty hours a week because I loved it so much. And then at some point you stop loving it because you're insane. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if you don't, and it was just not their fault, it was my fault. It was actually on the time I met you or on iRobot right. is when I started getting burnt out. Yeah, so yeah. unfortunately you didn't be- you didn't meet me at my best, unfortunately. Yeah. Um,
0: well, <laughs> everyone has their ups and downs and downs for sure.
3: Yeah. Um, but at that point it was, you know, again, I had great leaders there with my managers there and stuff and it was just time to leave. Um, so I took a break from DD, yep. um, And what did I do first after that? I mean, after that, I was a little bit of a journeyman. I did ILM for Transformers, which was tremendous. Mm -hmm. What a great experience. I moved to New York City for a year, Mm -hmm. worked at some of the smaller visual effects houses there at the time. There really weren't any big visual effects houses in New York at the time, uh, but had great experiences doing Flame for commercials and things like that. Um, And then went back to LA and did a little more journeyman stuff. And then eventually, my wife got pregnant with our first baby. We're both from Massachusetts. And she said she wanted to go back to Massachusetts. Okay. And I said, uh, but I make movies, so <laughs> there are a couple are of do? places
0: in Massachusetts that do some stuff. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, but it wasn't really feature level. It wasn't right. there wasn't at that point anything really. Um, the tax credit had just kind of started, so there was one company, Brickyard VFX, mm-hmm. that did um, was doing movie of the proposal and surrogates for Disney. And I called the LA office, David Blumen, uh, Blumenfeld, yeah. um, who DD guy, yeah. um, and was like, Hey, just randomly, I'm thinking of moving to Boston. Can you connect me someone in the LA, in the Boston office? And he was like, yes, they need people. And I called Brian Drews, who was one of the owners of Brickyard Filmworks. And he said, can you start tomorrow, basically. Um, And I did. I went and supervised the proposal just in post. And Sarah gets in post only. Mm -hmm. And got to move to Boston, got to do what I love. And that was actually my first supervisor credit, too. So the move to Boston actually promoted me as well, which is kinda of funny. Nice. Um and kind of helped to build that company, but then unfortunately just due to the lack of film work, there wasn't that much, especially post work in Boston. Uh, we didn't get to keep that train going. So the company closed or that section of it I don't know if it closed. I was laid off anyway, okay. the contract was ended. Um and then it was like, okay, great. And then ILM said they wanna be Fireman too and I was like, great, we're going back to San Francisco. At that point, we had a baby, of course. That was been born, and my wife's like, "No, I want to stay here," and I'm like, "But no, I want to go to do Iron Man too. Iron Man was amazing, right. and I love IL- ILM is one of my favorite places I've ever worked. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and there was a 15 shots for a Kevin James movie called Zookeeper, uh-huh. which was kind of floating out before Brickyard had closed. And then, or before I was like, oh, and then, um, or I don't know how you want to say that. I'm just trying to be carefully, legally speaking, because I'm not sure if they actually closed. They just, no one worked there anymore. I can say that. Um, So uh, anyway, so we got, I said, look, if we get a bid package for Zookeeper, then we can start a company like in our basement and it's fine. But they have till Friday for the deadline. Right. And if they don't do it, then I go, we get to go to San Francisco, which is what I was really pulling for. And like literally an hour before the ILM had given me a deadline of when I have to answer by, we got the bid package. Small amount of work, 13 to 15 shots, not a big award, but we could start a company in our basement. So we started with like literally $500 with a used IKEA furniture. And um, we started working on Zookeeper. I hired some freelancers I'd worked with previously at Brickyard. Right. And we were off and running. And. Um, from there, we moved out of my basement six months later, started a commercial division. Re- there's a lot of big agencies in Boston, so we got some commercial work pretty quickly. Features took two to three years to kind of get going. Yeah. Um, but then we got to do American Hustle with David O. Russell, which was kind of our first mini break. And then our first real break was Antoine Fuqua gave us a break on the Equalizer Right. with Denzel Washington. So that once that happened, we were off and running. And that and then, was zero. Uh, That's I, the start of zero. That was... Yeah. That was the start of Zero Visual Effects. And then also kind of a side note from there. And again, tell me to shorten this up if you need no, to. No, you're doing fine. But um, So um, we didn't have any money. Right. Like I was, I'm very opposed to debt. I, I moved to Massachusetts with a tremendous amount of debt. Before I had even left Brickyard, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like having a creative like role and having to choose projects based on how much money you can get in the door to make sure you keep paying your bills felt like an awful way to keep living my life. Right. So right before we started Zero, I paid off all my debt. Right. So the great thing was I had no debt, but I had no money. <laughs> like there was no savings because we used it all to pay off all the debt. Like we sold a car, I was taking the bus to work, like we had nothing. Right. But we had no debt. So it was great. And that's why I was able to start the company. Because honestly, if I still had debt, I would have had to go back to Iron to San Francisco and do Iron Man just because I had no, there would have been no choice. I need to keep paying those debt bills. Right. So now that we had no debt, I wasn't about to go into debt. But as you know, a visual effects company, we need a lot of computers, especially for rendering. Mm-hmm. And Again, I was not interested in signing a mortgage for computers that even at our peak, wouldn't be enough, and most of the time would be too much right so it felt like a bad idea amazon um, the aWS had started spinning up for websites now, so we're like, let's see if we can do this and uh, And we were mostly a 2 d house that's my obviously skill set. you know nuke was our, our big thing but so th- but, so the input the i o using the internet to render was like even the first time brian drews are my business partner mentioned me i was like that's insane how are we going to upload everything render it and download it? it'll take it's a 30 second frame per frame render right on most nuke jobs and it's a 25 minute per frame upload like that's ridiculous we can't do that right so then he was like okay great and then we have to go get a loan for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to to buy machines and i said that sucks yeah no no way we're doing that right uh so I said, well, let's spend some time. So we spent like a week, literally. And one of the first people we had hired was Brian Cipriano, a software engineer on our team, which was the great decision we made rather than just staffing it with artists to get the work done. We're like, we got to do this smart. So we brought on Brian very early on. And we we're like, well, let's just see if we can render Nuke on the cloud. Mm-hmm. And then as we did that, and it took him, I think, less than 24 hours to actually get the first render up.
0: How Now, what then year we were, was this? I want to just put this in perspective for people. This is
3: 2000. We started the company in 2010, so we were we were already doing this in 2010. We started pretty much right away on this on this rendering software. So as he was doing it, you know those 24 hours like back and forth, like how do we even just get a job spun up and get the software installed and do all the things? You know we were just talking about how could we architect this? Like, well, what if it was what if it uploaded in the background so the artist doesn't need to know that there's an upload even happening? Really, right? Like for me, it was like I don't want the artist to be slowed down with waiting for his job to upload. So what if I want to, if we're going to do this, I want it to be as transparent to the spot. I want it to feel like the server room is next door and they're just kicking off renders. Right. So again, part of the first test, although the first one was just getting the job off, the second test after that was like, can we just have a upload only job, render job? Can we just press a button in Nuke? You basically take in your reads. Once all the images are read into Nuke, you press one button, it kicks off a render job that all it's doing is uploading the files. Right. So that worked really quickly. Within a week, we had our first kind of real render that was already uploaded. We could render in seconds and download right to the directory we were writing to. So there was no like, okay, upload. Okay, then wait for the render. Then tech check the render. Then put it in the wrong folder and then move it and rename it. It was all, it really felt like you were doing it right locally. Right. So that was called Zync, Mm Z-Y-N-C. And we continued to develop that over time. Um, we had great partners, Kevin Bailey and Atomic Fiction mm-hmm. came on board as our very, very, very first customers. And we're really a, a paramount to the beta rounds of it and even the alpha rounds. Yep. And then we sold that tech to... Google in 2014. Yep. So we got to sell so just that piece of it. Um, so Zero was still ours, but Zinc went away, and Brian Soprano went away, and some of our Zinc team had to go and work for Google, which they still do this day, which I'm really excited about because they're loving it. Because we actually um, got a
0: part of, uh, we got V-Ray working in Zinc for Atomic Fiction at
3: that time. So that was the
0: big. I mean, that's right. Yeah.
3: yeah. 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 V-Ray was the first, I didn't even realize you were there. Yeah, that's we were, the, the, first were renderer
0: to, the first 3D yeah. renderer to work in, uh, in Zinc.
3: Uh, yeah, and the easiest people to work with, by the way, too. Everyone else we had to work oh. with <laughs> was a real pain in the butt. I'm not going to lie. It was, uh, on the 3 side, it was like the licensing issues and all the things. And yep. you guys were awesome.
0: Yeah, No. okay. So, but let, what, let's think about the economics back in 2010. Yeah. Like yeah. $750,000 to create your own render farm that you didn't want to, yep. you know, that's going to de- depreciate by the second, right? Or yeah. do it on the cloud. Now, the cloud wasn't cheap as cheap as it is now, or it's getting cheaper now? Like, what was the cost? Like, how did you figure out that that cost?
3: So for us, I mean, over time, like, if you looked at it, and you could say over the course of a year, if we know exactly how much work we're going to have, then ultimately buying the machines would have been cheaper. Right. However, especially a brand new company, we had no track record. We had no ability to know how much work we're going to get in. We had no ability, how much rendering we're going to need to do. Right. What we did know was the $750,000 worth of machines we're not going to be enough when we were at our busiest. Right. And we're going to be way too much on most days. So it felt like a really bad way to do it at all. And then with Zinc, um, even though, yes, per render hour, it's a bit of an upcharge. Mm-hmm. Um, it was billed to the project. There was no hidden costs. We knew as we were going what the costs were going to be. And there was no big risk of like, holy cow, we spent thousand dollars on rendering. It was like nominal. So we'd spend, say... I think we spent like $35,000 rendering on American Hustle, which had 500 shots. It was not a big expense when you consider if we had bought the $750,000 worth of machines, and yes, maybe things would have rendered a little quicker. Right. It's like we spent $35,000 all in versus we still have a mortgage on $750,000 and the movie's done and we're not getting paid anymore and we still got to pay these machines that aren't doing anything. Yeah. So you're right economically. Once you have a track record, at that point in time, it would have been wiser to get the money, get the loan. You'll make a little more money, a little more profit um, long term. But honestly, too, to this day, because I haven't done enough, it's been so long, I don't know the full assessment. Right. By the time those machines are paid for, you have to buy new ones. Yeah. So I don't honestly know that zinc would have been more expensive because Amazon was constantly upgrading machines. Yeah, yeah. Like it felt like every quarter they were like, hey, guess what? Now we have 16 cores. We're like, holy shit. Right. And we have 96 gigabytes of RAM. Holy shit. Right. This is great. Right, right, So it kept getting better and better. Yep. Um, which was a huge deal.
0: Uh, the, the way I sort of say it is like, you know, you you're, you're, you can scale up real fast, but you can also scale down real fast, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, instant, when you're not rendering, you're Literally not Literally, instantaneously. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, it really saved our butt. There was a night we were, uh, while we were at zero, I'm a huge Boston Red Sox fan, as you can kind of tell from the things behind me. <laughs> right. And they had just installed HD screens at Fenway Park um, before the season started. And I'm like, you guys have to introduce it really cool. So I went and approached the Red Sox. Like, let us do this for you. I want to basically have the screens explode. Like, look, when you walk into the stadium that day, I want it to look like the old screens. So like literally the old crappy manual analog light bulbs, really bad video screen. Um, so that the crowd comes in and goes, What I thought they were upgrading these. What? this is weird. Like, mm-hmm. why are they all boring and, and uh, so we did that? And the, the New York Yankees, obviously the rival, they got introduced in this old version. Like we were with the control room, we created a font for them. So it literally looked like it was the old thing, like no upgrade at all. Like it had like bad bulb works, were out, there was dents on That's it from hilarious. like the baseballs. And the New York Yankees get introduced on that. And then the mayor of Boston comes out, the ownership of the Red Sox and they have a fake button. They said, All right, press the button, and then the screens explode <laughs> all around the stadium. Breaking the old one and the new ones come up in HD. It was so much fun. Oh my God. Um, to be a part of that. It was really cool. And then the Red Sox get announced on the big HD and you're like, holy cow, what a difference. Right. But the fun thing was the night before opening day, we're in the pre- they were in the control box at Fenway Park showing it to the owners at midnight and we're rendering one last version back at the office. So we're still going to do one more version, but we had to get them to approve it. And we get a call from the office um, yeah, you guys have to come back right now because there's water pouring down on our office like everywhere so i stayed with the red sox to kind of get their notes brian ran back to the office and sent me video there's literally water pouring out of the ceiling everywhere on our computers on the server i mean everywhere it was a total disaster there was a hair salon above us okay who one of their pipes had burst and just flooded they had like three feet of water that just started finally pouring down into our place fire department came everything anyway so we had no computers now our server was washed we were hoping it would turn on again the next day when it was dry. But the best thing was, because we had done Zinc, although it was early days, everything was on the cloud. Right. So it's like automatic showed up next morning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it was a huge benefit. We were able to deliver the Red Sox stuff, and we were working on a feature at the time. That all got done. Yeah. So then it became like, well, shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is way better than having our own server, because we would have been totally done. Right. If that server didn't turn on again, we had some LTOs from a couple of days before, but we would have lost the last three days of the final this Red Sox project, which honestly... We wouldn't have been able to get it done. I mean, you don't. You can't do three days of work in six hours. You know, right, right, right. So, the, so, so did, there was huge so, benefits to that. So, when
0: you sold, think was that was it? Did, did Google approach you guys like, hey, we want a solution, we want to be part of this. You guys have something
3: that we could use, or did you guys sort of? How did that sort of work? So it wasn't. We had been approached by other people, not Google. Okay, and we had, Google had offered us uh, a small fee. Well, would consider a small fee to um, move it from AWS to the Google Cloud Services, right? Which at the time we looked at like, yeah, it would basically cost us exactly the number you're giving us. Right. Um, and they, they even offer discounts on well the CPUs. And they like, yeah, I don't think it's going to – like, there's going to be something bigger than sure. that. And that was like a year before we sold it. And then as we were continuing to run – at this point now, our feature film business um, was really starting to go like – we we had Equalizer. We had some big movies coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what I love to do, man. I love to make movies. Right. Um, I don't necessarily love to run a software company. Um <laughs> And I'm so proud of it. We couldn't have done it without it. But as far as being in both worlds, it wasn't a passion of mine. And at that point, we hadn't spun up enough clients yet where the machines were amortizing. So basically, the more clients we got, the more money we were losing. So it wasn't necessarily like we were really losing money, but it was like you were basically break even. And with the amount of money we were putting into it. Um, it was either, let's go invest. Let's see either get an investor. Let's either get debt and do like, to do, it was, there was a next phase to come. Right. And at that point, and which again, I, I just wasn't, I want to make movies. That's right. really all I've wanted to do So I was four, as I mentioned. Um, so we had got offers from a couple other places, some software companies, and they weren't great offers. But Brian was like, let me go back to Google. Let me just let him know, we have a deal that we were going to accept. Mm-hmm. Um, we were going to be you know exclusive in 24 hours. Like, let's just tell Google. Just tell them we're going to be because for 24 hours. You guys want to, you know, rethink this mm-hmm. or consider it? And Google came back six hours later and said we want it. What's the number? We told them the number. They said yes. Okay. We're like, oh, I guess we should have told them a bigger number because um, <laughs> they said yes to the first number. Um, but then, then they literally they said it was going to take a three. I mean, they were. I mean, they're so buttoned up with mergers and acquisitions, it's ridiculous. Like right. they give you a timeline of exactly what's going to happen when it's going to happen. I have a PDF. And it was a,
0: a brochure ready for
3: you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean, we. I think we were company 28 of. 32 companies that were bought by Google that year. So they right. have a system. Um, but they said it was going to take three months. It took three weeks. And we were out of zero zinc. And they had taken over all the IP right. and our team and our patent and all the things. And yep. I got to go focus on movies again, which was awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, I still worked with them for, for quite a while on, on the
3: zinc project with Todd and all those guys. So. Uh, yeah. And Todd and Brian are still there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, zinc is no longer, I believe. But.
0: Well, no, it's not. Long. But it was still used for a long time. Long time. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but I think
3: it was just like 2020 or something. They decided to stop yeah, doing it or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: But I was, you know, I was, I mean, I was working with, you know, uh, I don't know. I work with a couple of people at Google who are doing projects there and themselves. And they was like, Oh no, we still use Zinc all the time. I was like, oh, that's
3: cool. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. great to hear. So,
0: so, well, not, I don't know recently. I don't know if they're doing that recently. Yeah. But that was definitely being used. Uh, so, yeah. So cool. I mean I'm
3: super proud of it. It's still an amazing piece well, of technology that made were the it just first, so easy to do it. You know?
0: guys were the first one to sort of like break yeah. that mold, right? I mean, obviously now there's a lot of different uh, cloud services that have come yeah. up and deadline has got one, et cetera, et cetera. But if you guys hadn't done it, I don't think that 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 would have would have worked as uh, uh, which is which is great. That's really cool. Yeah, and I I,
3: if we hadn't done it too, Zero wouldn't have got where it is. I mean when right. I, I sold Zero four years ago next month and we by the time I sold it we had hundred employees in New York, Boston and Los Angeles, never used debt. Right. You know, I mean all self growth, no investors came in. I mean it was and zinc is the only reason we were able to do that. So I'm still very proud of of that and what they do. I still work with Zero every day. They're working on the last three movies I've done, they've worked on with me. So
0: Okay. So so okay, so what motivated you to I mean you said you you know you love making movies and what motivated you to sell Zero?
3: Um, so honestly, it was my poor leadership, I think really more than anything else. Okay. I, uh, so I was really head of business development for feature films and right. the head creative at the company. And that's not a one person job, especially when you have a hundred people you're paying, um, yeah. every two weeks. And it literally became, so I was in Budapest shooting a movie that we were shooting seven days a week with second unit. Cause I was doing second unit as well mm-hmm. while I was. Um, posting another movie, we just finished shooting, and I was prepping another movie. I was about to start shooting, right. and I missed my son's first Father's Day. My wife had it up to her neck with like the whole business. I was totally fried, um, and it was because of my lack of leadership. Like I think a lot of, and I can prove it actually. And I'll tell you that story. So you know, I loved mentoring people. It wasn't that issue at all. Mm. Um, I loved building a team. I loved that we got to build it in Boston because we didn't have this pool of amazingly experienced, decade-in people. We had some people like that, for sure, because we had to. Like, people that had links to Boston wanted to come back. Either their spouse was from there, or they were from there. We definitely got some senior people that were, you know, the heavy hitters. But we had to do a lot of development of people, and that's one of my favorite things to do. So to get to see people, even right out of college, and then, you know, by the time I left Zero, I'd been there eight years, like, people that were now running the company. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredible to see that growth and be a part of that. But where I was a poor leader was not trusting my people well enough. The one place I had a hard time transitioning was filmmaker relationships. There's such a nuance to talking to film directors, and they're all different. Like when I first met Pete Berg, you know, it's a very different experience than when you first meet Catherine Bigelow and how to build that rapport and how to kind of get their trust as quickly as you can. And you basically have 10 seconds to get their trust. Mm -hmm. And every filmmaker I've worked with is very unique and very different, and they're all trying to look for the BS in everyone they meet, especially department heads, especially a visual effects company that at the, most of the stuff we got was we were only in Boston until I want to say 2015, I think we moved into LA. So when you're only in Boston, you're only on the South, they're like, what are you doing here if you're good? If you're good, what are you doing in Boston? It was kind of the thing we get a lot. And honestly, that's the first thing Antoine Fuqua said to me, mm-hmm. literally, not even nice to meet you. Your uh, your real is good. What are you doing here? You know, and that's, I think, a part of it, because if you are good, people wouldn't assume LA, which now, of course, is... Not really the case anymore, but right. at the time it was. So they, ba- most of the filmmakers I met, as it was growing, was the studio was forcing them to meet me because they were usually shooting in Massachusetts or want to take advantage of the Massachusetts tax credit. So it wasn't like they heard of my name through multiple people and they wanted to meet me. They, the studio told them, go talk to them. You have to because it's 25% discount on their work. Right. So they're already like, mm, we don't know if we like you. Like you have to win them over quickly, and with someone like Pete Berg, it's just fun inside baseball. Like he, I I we had an hour's notice. We had no idea he was in town. The producer called us and said, "Hey, can you come meet Pete Berg right now to talk about his next movie?" And literally an hour notice, we're like, "Uh, "Okay." So we get there for the. We walk into a room with 14 people around a conference table at a hotel. It's one of the few rooms to this to that point, even to this point, where I didn't know a single person in the movie business. If there's a room full of 14 people, chances are good I'm going to know a couple. You know, I didn't know anybody. Um, and I have still need to this day, I think it was Jack Schuster at CBS Films who found us somehow and gave us, anyway, I didn't know anyone. And the first thing Pete says to us, he shows us a handheld footage, it was for the film Patriots Day, he shows us handheld iPhone footage of the actual event of the bombing and it's super shaky and total chaos and it's actually, it actually, wasn't even the guy focusing on it, it was a still photographer holding his still photographer in one hand, taking pictures, which he cared about, and then randomly holding his iPhone in the other. So it couldn't get shakier. It couldn't get more complex. There's nothing to track. Motion blurs everywhere. It's all smoke filled. Like he goes, "I want to put Mark Wahlberg in this shot. It's easy, right?" And uh, at that point, like all the decisions that go in my head when he asks you that, like you're, he's, it's a shit test. You know, he's testing you to see if you're going to say what you're going to say, and all the things that go through my head. How do I teach that to someone else? Because mm-hmm. some directors want to hear you say, "That's easy," or at least we can take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. Right. And then other directors like Pete. You need to kind of chest bump a little bit and go back at them and say, you're out of your mind. That's freaking ridiculously difficult. And we got to make Mark Wahlberg do all this crazy stuff. It's going to be super hard. Mm-hmm. So to know in the moment who you're talking to, how to read them and decide what to do. I remember in that moment, I waited so long to talk because he Pete's coming over the table. He's saying this to me. My brute, my uh, partner, Ryan Drews, is there with me. And I'm sitting looking at Pete like, you a-hole like you're just trying to play with me right now so I like sat there silent like not gonna let him own the conversation I sat there in silence for probably 10 seconds but it was long enough that Brian started talking Mm -hmm. and I didn't want him to and I slammed my hand on the table and I stood up and I said Pete that is ridiculous you're a very talented filmmaker you know this is not easy and that's a bullshit question (laughs) <laughs> now do you want to talk about how we can do it or not and right then and there on I, we got hired like I knew in that moment we got hired right. but how do you teach that to someone that's that's not a visual well you gotta take thing, a guts you know? thing
0: right? is he testing yes. you and he was obviously
3: <laughs> exactly yeah. and it, look I could have I could have been wrong obviously right. but that one of the things I found I had a gift for this of looking at filmmakers trying to understand the world from their point of view empathize with what they need Right. and in this case you know make a read and go for it and I, I couldn't figure out how to teach that and I guess I took a lot of pride in that mm-hmm so it's hard to do something I was still relatively new at. It. I mean, only I mean when I decided to sell Zero, I was really only in as a, as a real feature film supervisor for five years, mm-hmm. and over that time, what I did eight movies. Right. So it's like it's not like you have a ton of cycles on this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't I didn't spend the time. Although I had great creative supervisors on my team, I didn't spend the time to teach them how to talk to filmmakers. Right. And when we decided, when I decided to part the company, and we got into figuring out how we we're going to sell it and all the things. Um, I basically was there for six more months, and uh-huh. in that six month period, I trained people a lot more diligently on how to do this. Right. And guess what happened? Zero grew by thirty three percent the year I left, right. because I finally got out of my own way, decided you can teach this stuff, and you can sit down, you can slow down, which you can probably tell I have a hard time doing, right. <laughs> and figure out how to. When you're in a room like that, what do you do? How do you get a filmmaker to trust you in those kind of situations? And you know, in zeros continuing to crush it and zero, you know, Brian Drew's led them through COVID, which not a lot of companies were able to do. So, right. um, it's, uh, it was uh, an important step in, in my growth and, um, and I'm really glad they did that. And I just wish I had done it earlier. Cause I'd probably still own zero and not have sold it. If I was able to delegate at that level, you know, when I was but there. are you
0: glad that you got out of your way? In some ways,
3: in I'm very glad I got out of my way. I'm are you doing what you teach. still love? <laughs> I am definitely still, still doing what I love. And, um, and I guess I don't regret selling zero. I guess I regret that I just wish I would have made all of our lives easier by doing this two years earlier. Right. I still think I would have sold zero when I did. I don't think that changes that much. Maybe it would have bought me another year. But I do feel like I wasted two years of personnel development, mm. which would have been which slowed down other people, slowed down myself, put a lot of stress on me and my business partner. And I feel like that's that's the regret. Not that I not that I sold it and left, but that I could have done it two years earlier and made all of our lives better, the work better, all the things, you right.
0: know what were some of your favorite projects that you worked that you had? Did you worked on when when you were part of Zero?
3: Um, the, the Equalizer was a super right. super fun blast. Awesome. I mean, you know, just to get to work with Denzel Washington um, and Antoine Fuqua. Antoine and I, we we did. S- Six projects together. I mean, I did every movie with him after that. Okay, um, and that's I guess the biggest pride taken zero was that we there wasn't a single filmmaker except for David Russell that didn't come back to us for every movie they did. Okay, so if you look at the Zeroes, it's like, yep, that's the same director on this one, the same film producer, same like. So it was a real sense of pride going from a place that, hey, what are you doing in Boston? This small little company. But once you work with us one time, people never stopped. Right. Um, even even when I left too, which is great. Like Pete Berg continues to do movie all their movie, all his movies with Zero, and I haven't been there for four years. Right. So it's just a real point of pride that we were able to do that. Uh, but Equalizer started off for sure. I mean, it was at the time it's like we were punching above our weight class. Mm-hmm. But I guess I didn't feel it when it was happening. It's only after when people saw it and there's big explosions and you know CG Denzel faces and a, a huge uh, diversity of work. Right. That at the time was like, let's just go. We did it. We had a great team, a small team, but we did it. We, you know, and we just crushed it and it looked great. And I'm so very proud of it. And it was after, I know, full CG environments. And then, you know, after, and some people in the industry that saw were like, how many people did you have to do this? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, there's 25 of us on the team. What? Like, and they were the ones that were like, you, this is insane. You shouldn't have been able to do this. Right. Um, So there's a lot of pride in that. But that's kind of how Zero felt like, well, look, if we can do that, we can keep going bigger and better. Um, with a small team, we don't need this huge team cause we can do it. And of course that doesn't always work out, but for the most part it did. Yeah. Um, and we were able to, you know, become filmmakers friends and help them create their vision. But equalizer was a big one. Um, for sure. Um, there was a movie called sex tape, which I don't think many people saw with Cameron Diaz and Jason Segel, uh-huh. which was so much fun. Um, uh, the director, um, oh my gosh, totally having a, Oh, Jake Kasdan, okay. uh, just the sweetest guy um that was just so much fun to work on i've now been working on this is my i'm working on the third movie now our fourth movie with sean anders and john morris um Mm -hmm. we did daddy's home two with them instant family right and i'm doing a movie for them with apple called spirited which is the best movie i've ever done Mm -hmm. which is really exciting for everyone to see at thanksgiving time um but yeah so that i guess those are the big ones that were that, that stand out the most i mean we ended up doing a lot of movies at zero as the time has gone on um patriots day certainly again working with I like working with big personalities like an Antoine and Pete Berg and right. um, kind of like the challenges that kind of come from that.
0: Awesome, awesome. Okay, so, so after you sold it, so you kind of went independent VFX supervisor, right? So, or, yes. or, stu- or studio side is sometimes called, right? Yes, yeah. So, so, so um, what was that transition like?
3: So that part of it, so I had a two-year non-compete agreement as part of my sales agreement with zero. Mm-hmm. So basically for two years, I, I basically retired for movies okay um and started consulting and helping small businesses run their business better and that was kind of what my job was for two years it was like i can't work in movies so what can i do and i want to be with the family more i mean a big part of it was like all right let's get some family time in i have three kids and right you know we want to recenter my life around what's most important um but i'm like i also and although i didn't necessarily, didn't necessarily have to work right away I and mean, the agreement was was fair for all parties but i can't just sit still. So, like, well, what can I provide? Well, I started a company in my basement with five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. By the time I left, we had three different locations, a hundred employees. I sold part of it to Google earlier. Like, there was a lot of business knowledge now in my brain that wasn't there previously, mm-hmm. and I loved like teaching people how to do things. Um, it was artists before that, and it became small business owners for about a year and a half, which was a, a great privilege. But at some point, I was like, I got to, you know, I, at the, honestly, at the point when I entered that, I was like, I could probably do this forever. This is my new thing. I'm going to give yep. up movies because I have a better family life and all the things, but I can't do that. I love it. This mm-hmm. is what I meant to do. I was created for this. I have to do this. And um, after a year and a half, I started doing movies again and decided actually I was going to go into producing rather than visual effects, or at least kind of half and half as I went through it. So mm-hmm. I got to produce a movie called American Underdog, mm-hmm. which I also did the visual effects for. Um, and with zero actually, and mm-hmm. uh base in China and, um, fuse mm-hmm. uh, did that. So that was my first official like studio side supervisor job, but I was, I was also producing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, um, honestly, because of how zero did it, although I was a vendor side supervisor, there was no show super- I was the show supervisor. So like on equalizer one, there were the only vendor. We, I supervised the set in many ways. I was the producer and the supervisor cause I was the only representative of zero on set. So right. I had to have the financial discussions with the producers as well as the creative discussions with Antoine. Um, and we got, I mean, that was a, you know, trial by fire. But once I got that, I mean, it's basically what I got used to. So for me, the, the the way to transition into the studio side of things was that I don't have to worry about the money as much. Sure. And when you're the vendor executing it, and Antoine's like, hey, can we add another explosion shot? All I'm thinking is how much it's going to cost. Can we execute it? Do we have the personnel? Which is really nothing that's supposed to be in my brain right. when I'm supervising a movie. Um and ultimately, for me, uh, the movie was always more important to me than Zero's profitability, which again, not a great thing for <laughs> a leader of business. But right. that's just how I, I like the movie's the most important thing. I need to do this movie well, so it really didn't change my role. Like it, I don't feel like my role was any different on the studio side of things at all, except right. that I have more support because I have a bigger team around me. So, like on Spirited, I have a visual effects producer, production manager, two coordinators, and a PA. Mm -hmm. And on the set, I had uh, two Wranglers and a witness cam operator. Like when I was doing it myself, because again, I'm the business owner. I'm trying to spend as little money as possible. I wasn't giving myself that level of support. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that was on me. Like I'm shooting my own HDRIs and I'm trying to run my own witness camera and not doing it as well as someone that would have been focused on it and things like that. So that's the biggest transition, honestly, for me was just like, hey, you don't have to do this all alone anymore. You know, there's a team that you can put together that makes your life way easier, and by the way, makes you do better at your job. Right. Because now I get to focus on the creative and how to make the movie the best it can be.
0: And you don't make mistakes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite sayings is: "If you're not making mistakes, you're not working hard enough." (laughs) Yeah. So, especially in this business. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's true. That's true. Uh, Well, that's interesting. That's that's really cool. Uh, I mean, what's so so so? You went into being studio side VFX supervisor right as the pandemic was kind of going on right so i've spoken to a bunch of studios you know about how they transitioned to during the during uh that time but what was it like actually being in the on the filmmaking side of things during that time like how did that work out
3: yeah i mean it's it's it was tense it was really hard um you know the the safety was there, and I think there was so many unknowns with the safety though. Even then,
2: mm-hmm.
3: like it was way like we I finished shooting Spirited last November. That was way smoother process than the first movie we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I helped my buddy Matt Leslie direct his first film, The Knocking. Well, I didn't help him direct it; he directed it. I helped him with some visual effects and stuff um, mm-hmm. back in August of twenty twenty. So right, it was like one of the first films to start shooting in LA. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time on a movie set, I didn't really have a lot of fun because of all the, I realized what I love about filmmaking so much is the people you get to work with. But now you're, we were like literally police, like six feet away, masks on. You can't have a conversation with someone on a movie set six feet away. Right. We're always whispering. There's no scenario where you're going to get to know someone six feet away. And have a a mask
0: on and you can't hear it. You can't
3: read lips. Nope. (laughs) So it was a really, it was was a hard shoot for him. It was a more, you know, independent film. And it was just brutal. So it was like, man, this sucks. And then American Underdog was kind of the first Hollywood feature I was on a set for. And I got more used to it. It was a little bit um, more understood of what we were doing. Mm
2: -hmm. The
3: standards weren't changing every day, which I felt like we did when we did the knocking. So at least we knew what we were getting into. For the most part, the crew was very cooperative with it. um, And it was a much more clear Program So it, although it still wasn't fun, you know, the I guess there was some things that were a little more lax, which I guess isn't a good thing in some mind, but like we were able to communicate a bit better. Right. So the six feet thing wasn't quite as policed. I mean, we were playing, a, it was a football movie. So we're running around the football field. Right. Like it just wasn't as policed as like, no, literally six feet. Like they were measuring us. They had a six foot long stick that they would put between us on the knocking. Oh my God. Um, and like. Or like say, Hey, look at that desk and that thing, that six feet stay that far apart. Like where on the on American on it wasn't quite at that level. Right. So it made it more collaborative again. So I had a lot more fun again, honestly. Right. Um, and we, we kept safe, of course. And I don't think there was any real COVID outbreaks at all in that movie. So it worked out well, but it basically got into that rhythm. And then of course by spirited, and we all had the rhythm down and, um, know they were very good at it. The COVID teams at that point had done multiple movies, and it became easier. I mean, yeah, it must have easy. been a
0: lot of expense added to films. Not, I mean, just obviously all the testing and new crew that had to be put into place, but also just slows the process down.
3: Like, right? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, you especially on Underdog because we had budgeted thirty days um, to shoot it, and we kept to thirty days. But honestly, we lost like three days of what I would consider actual time because of the the testing and waiting for testing to come back, waiting for actors to come through and getting, and we had major issues with testing because we shot in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City and there wasn't, uh, we had one lab that closed at a certain time. If we didn't get the test out in time, we didn't get the test back in the next day. So we had significant issues with, we had massive crowds we were trying to get in, which we couldn't do crowds, of course, because of COVID, but we had like, we got approval for, I think, 180 people. And we got hit with the biggest snowstorm in Oklahoma's history, or close to it. Wow. Like The weekend before we started shooting these extras, we couldn't get them tested. Wow. So we went from getting 180 extras to fill up at least close to the field. And uh, for the story, Kurt Warner played arena football. So you're basically playing on the size of an uh, ice rink. Right. So I didn't want to do CG people. <laughs> next to the ice, basically, or next to the football field that's that small. Yeah. Putting them in big stands and filling up a whole sure, stadium sure, of sure. people, way easier than putting them next to the players hitting it, slamming into the walls. Right. So when we actually showed up the day to get the we were expecting 180, we got 24 extras. So did you just go so, tighter? <laughs> uh no, we, we couldn't honestly because you get a football movie. How do you oh, just yeah, avoid yeah, 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 seeing yeah, yeah. everything? Right. So we did the best we and we were shooting six cameras. Uh, you know, little remote control ones that would fly around the field and right. big cranes and steady cams and handhelds. And it's just, there was no way to do it. So basically, my, what I, and that one I was producing it and um, supervising it. So it was like, okay, here's what we can do. Let's pick our main shot per take as much as we can and go, this is where we're going to use our crowd. Mm-hmm. Let's get them in the shot as much as we can. Let's see if we can get at least one of these takes to be clean of visual effects, if at all possible, mm-hmm. and, or at least as minimal as we can. And then the rest are just going to, we'll, we'll do it digital later. And then what I ended up doing was shooting. Um, about 250 people in different costumes on a green screen with a nine camera array. So we, I just didn't see a scenario where we could do CG people as close as they are to the field. as many shots as we had. I mean, these would have had to been full photo reel, full body, double, you know, performances of people that have to be completely see. I mean, it's truly in focus right. next to the field. There was no scenario. So we shot a nine camera array. People on green screen, and then we're able to populate them in 2D. Um, right. fuse affected most of that work, and it was it worked out great, but it was scary because you're like, How are you gonna? I mean, these are big 3D dynamic moves, right. and we're using 2D people. Um, but it worked really well. But it that was, okay. you know, yeah. it worked, it did work, it worked really well. Um, but it was that was that was tense because, especially on the day, because you're like, All right, I'm re- ready to organize 180 people, mm-hmm. and 24 show up, <laughs> and you're just like, You know, how empty a stadium looks at 24 people in it, it's yeah. like, There's no one here, yeah,
0: yeah. I remember. So I mean, there was definitely I, some tensions. I remember, like, it's funny. I remember my, my first experience was that was actually on iRobot when there was supposed to be a room with a thousand robots, and we put a thousand robots, and it didn't look even close to being a <laughs> thousand.
3: I remember that. Yeah, seriously.
0: <laughs> so we actually beat like 4,000 robots. It's like, yeah, that's what looks like a thousand robots, but it's really 4,000.
3: <laughs> seriously. Yeah, wide shots, especially. Goodness gracious. And we were shooting an amorphic too. Yeah. So the, the, the wide berth, you're like, oh, this is, I mean, 24 people look like two. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's like a small family gathering.
3: (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Yeah, oh, oh, a big family came together. That's what it looked like. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, listen, we're getting towards the end, but I still want to cu- pick your brain about a couple of things if you have a second. Yeah,
3: yeah, please go, go, go.
0: So, so, what are some of the th- what are some of your thoughts about the industry uh, recently? Like where it's going? There's a bunch of new stuff happening. There's things in virtual productions, which is different from the LED walls or the in-camera visual effects, as it's called. Uh, and uh, there's a real-time technology. There's a bunch of other things. What are your thoughts about where the general visual effects industry is going right now, and how that's affecting things? And even just on set and all of that stuff.
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's completely changing the way we're approaching every problem. I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, the real-time production, the virtual productions, the, the you know, what Unreal Engine can do and the LED screens, like, it's, I am so excited about where it's going. For me, although I love visual effects, you know, just getting the story told the best way possible has always been my, my passion. Um, and the visual effects is how we do it is just the tools. It's like, are you choosing a hammer or a drill? Like, it doesn't sure. matter. Um, You just got to keep growing your bag of tricks. So for me, the more we can get in camera, it's better for everyone. It's better for the actors, for the directors, for the producers. Uh, I mean, a big thing now is like, I don't feel like I'm just supervising a movie for the final result. And which is kind of how I started my career. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter what happens in post. It's just wait as long as you're done by the end.
2: Right.
3: But that's really not true anymore, especially for big Hollywood features. They test these movies for audiences,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: you need to have this movie as polished as you can as quickly as you can. The last movie I'm working, the movie I'm working on right now, we screened for an audience six weeks after we wrapped, and it's a massive, massive. It's 1,600 shots. I mean, it's a massive movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but we screened it for an audience for six, within six weeks, and we could do that because I looked at it not as let's just do what we have to do to make it look good for final. But while we're shooting it, going, okay, how do we get this thing previewable as fast as we can? Mm-hmm. So LED screens, LED walls, virtual production stuff is going to allow us to get audience feedback way faster. So it's not just about the final look, which I think also is enhanced in a lot of ways by this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's also allowing you to get feedback from an audience quicker and allow the post process to be more efficient, um, which ultimately, in most cases, makes the movie a better movie. Um, so that's, you know, that's where I'm most excited about uh, this new technology. And obviously, as it's getting... More and more affordable. Like the fun thing for me is, it's like we're like a couple of years away from like independent filmmakers being able to do this too. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm all not, for- not necessarily
3: full like CG environments, but like driving driving plates and like having intimate scenes where you just need something out the window, like where you want to do an intimate scene of talking heads and you can't get to the location and there's a window out there. Yeah. And even independent film right now doing 55 visual effects, blue screens out the window. It's like, that's kind of... That's not going to get much cheaper because we still have an artist that has to do the work. Sure. But to rent a screen for a day and put the background you want out there is pretty darn cheap, even now, right? right. So it's going to start getting more affordable and allow people to do simpler things a lot quicker.
0: I mean, I like... I like GarageBand technology. I mean, I think that's the, the cool stuff. You know, I'm actually like right here in my living room. I'm I'm testing some real-time ray tracing and virtual production stuff. So it's like, awesome. You know, that's what I want to do, and that's the kind of stuff that I feel is important about that kind of stuff. So that's cool. That's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's happening. What What are your thoughts about independent filmmakers uh, now getting into these kind of things, and and how streaming is affecting the work that 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 those guys are able to do, or what do you th- What do you think about? where the industry is going there
3: (laughs) well i'm really excited about the amount of content being created right now Mm -hmm. um number one i'm a fan of what we get to do and that's both in film and television i mean i just love storytelling i love being told a story and being taken away to a new world and the amount of content i can't imagine there's been a time in history where this much content has been made ever i mean it's just unbelievably prevalent with how much is being done and that's not going to slow down anytime soon and streaming Mm -hmm. services are you know, one of the biggest driving forces for that. So more and more people are getting a chance to have a career. Yeah. Um, there's more jobs, which means there's more opportunity. And that's a big deal to me. As someone who didn't I, – I got lucky because Jonathan Eggstad who went to my school randomly, who I didn't know, gave me a shot. Yep. And there's just a lot more opportunity for that now. So for me, the benefit of that is huge um, for not just me but for everyone. I mean, there's just so much stuff happening, and the quality of it is going up and up and up. People say, oh, there's nothing good on, and there's still complaints in general of like, well – it's just, like, are you kidding me? You know how much good stuff we have to watch right now? Just, and even the stuff that's not just good is still better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But honestly, for the most part, we're making really, really good stuff. Yeah. And this stuff is really hard to do. And I'm not saying everything's great, but like for the most part, there's voices being heard now that would never have a chance to be heard. Yeah. And it's like, and there's not, it's not just a diversity, like, oh, we're making diversity a priority. That's not the reason this is happening. Right. They can say that all they want. It's because we're making so much more content. We need more voices. Yes. So while there's a lot of people saying, well, yeah, 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 we're making an effort to make it more diverse, and yes, I'm sure they are, brass taxes, if we weren't making more content, those voices still wouldn't have a place. Right. So we need the initiative of, like, less, we need more people, we need more women filmmakers, we need more minority filmmakers, but they wouldn't be getting the shot. The studio wouldn't just start giving them $100 million movies because simply they, they want to be more diverse we have more content being made. So right. the diversity of voices being told right now, I mean, it's amazing. And you amount have the of ability cultures.
0: To, to go for niche audiences as opposed to yes. the obligation of going for the mass audience.
3: Exactly. And the niche audiences, for me, the biggest thing about storytelling is the more, the more specific you are with what you're trying to tell, the more broad your yep. appeal can become. Because sure. we're all relative. There's no, there's no great story told that only relates to some one group of people. Right. Like, it completely, the The more, I can't remember, it's a quote some author said, but the, the more specific you get for your own story, the more it relates to everyone.
2: Sure.
3: So, these opportunities are happening. I mean, I think it's the most exciting time in content creation ever. And I hate saying that word, but it feels like that's kind of the right word now because it is filmmaking. Storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sure. a super exciting time. And I'm just really... I feel very blessed that I was born at this time and get to be a part of it, you know? Awesome, awesome.
0: Well, listen, Sean, I appreciate your time. This has been absolutely amazing. Great catching up with you. We definitely should do it more often. Maybe next time you, we man. don't do it without a mic, we can just do it over some beers. Yes, <laughs> That'd that be a sounds, lot of fun. Sounds awesome, man. That'd be great. would <laughs> be a lot of fun. Uh, but thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, it great to see you again, brother.